I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. The year is 1958, the album Improvisations to Music, the artist, Mike Nichols and Elaine May. My guest this week is Deborah Theaker. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm, I'm delighted that you picked the first Nichols and May album. I felt compelled to because I walked in their footsteps. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up with my dad playing me Bob Newhart, Shelley Berman, and uh, all the Nichols and May albums when I was like six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. And so for a little girl from Hazy, Saskatchewan to end up working at all of the second cities, it was improbable. But because of that early exposure, I blame them. Um, that's, that's what led me into it. Into I love that. Actually. Was, uh, so was this a thing? You know, I always like to know uh, what the situation was that you would find yourself listening to a record in the house. Was this like a, every weekend we did this or a special occasion? Uh, no, it was a lot of the time because I grew up on the prairies in Saskatchewan before cable TV mm-hmm. many, many years ago in the olden days. <laughs> and um, so, you know, we were limited by the weather and the clothes and play was our entertainment. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah I mean, this was also, I mean, we've talked about it before, but it's a period of time when you do have something to stick around, even if you, you know, there are a chance that maybe the rabbit ears weren't going to work that week. You know, maybe you can't yeah. get it, you know, so you, at least you can rely on a record. Right. Yeah. I, I love that. Were there any Canadian acts that you guys had on? I mean, there legitimately are not a ton of Canadian comedy records from the time I've looked, but there were some. There isn't. There isn't. Well, I mean, everybody knew Wayne and Schuster. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew the Royal Canadian Air Force. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't really my cup of tea. I was a different generation from them. So I didn't, I think, you know, what I was responding to, but I didn't know was the irony and the level of satire and all the intelligence behind Nichols and May. But I didn't know it at the time. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have said that's what it was. Sure, sure. And it didn't hurt that, you know, it's one of the few comedy. And I, again, I'm, I am uh, unfortunately perpetuating this, but. I've only got one woman on this wall of records, and that's her. And I, you know, every you time know. I look at it, I'm like, oh, God damn Yeah, it. but you know what? She's worth 100. Oh, my God. She's, she's amazing. the star. She's and the- I love Mike Nichols, but she's the star of these records. She's phenomenal. I mean, just her range and the, the characters that she brings up and the commitment that she invests it with. I just finished. I think we were talking about this. I had Paul Dooley had sent me the Mike Nichols book, um, oh, Life. Yeah everything. I finished reading it and then I sent him back Mike Nichols a life, which is the new book out by uh, Mark Harris. Oh yeah. He's married to Tony Kushner and was a personal friend of Mike Nichols and just the stories of their time together and how they were starting the scenes and the genesis of it is so fascinating. Yeah. But interesting thing about this is for a first album, um, they were nominated for a Grammy. I love it been out for five months and they got a grammy nomination that's unheard of yeah that's remarkable I mean, yeah that it, is really remarkable i think this has got to be one of those examples though too so this is 58 like people you know there's always this weird dichotomy where people sort of assume that comedy is always improvised nobody writes this stuff down but then there are also people who i who i think once they hear real actual improv are like oh this is something totally new and don't understand it so it had to have been very fresh for people oh yeah it must have been well i can tell you just what paul told me he mm-hmm. paul dooley was the doorman at the village vanguard in new york mm-hmm. and um their manager uh rollins rollins and joffy their management mm-hmm. uh, booked them into that room and paul said outside of seeing barbara streisand perform for the first time seeing them perform blew his mind he said they were so unbelievably good that he can live on the memory you know mm-hmm. these years i wish i could have seen them live but i was doing a deep dive to kind of reacquaint myself and i saw i never saw the afi tribute to mike nichols where elaine May was in her got to be her late 70s did you see have you seen no this? i haven't no please okay so for everybody watching go to youtube and look this up now she came out and she said i mean this is it's a very special night for me because it was maybe 10, 20, 30, 
40 years ago that I bought this dress. And, and then she starts off like that. Then she goes on, and it turns out that Mike Nichols' cousin was Albert Einstein. Um, yeah, I'm giving you some... Okay. ...that I got from the book that I was like, what? And she, I never... So I thought it was a, a bit that she was doing, but it was actually real. She said, I, I have this letter here from your cousin. It's only the second page, so we have no idea what he meant on the first page. And I'm just going to pull it out. Hopefully I pulled the right thing out. And she takes out this yellow paper, lined paper, little Igor, because his name was Igor Mikhail. Okay. So she uh, reads this letter that she wrote, obviously she wrote, that is alleged to be Albert Einstein's letter to his cousin. And at the end, everybody, you can see it in real time, they just jump out of their seats for this rapturous standing ovation because she blew everybody off the stage. It was brilliant. Wow. I just, I don't, she's also the, well, okay. I'm, I'm, this is me speaking from, uh, you know, a bit of an attention whore performer myself to withhold herself so much from the public eye is, uh, to me seems challenging, but maybe to her, it's exactly what she needs, but woof. Apparently she never gave a fat rat's ass. She just never cared what people thought about her. She mm -hmm. was motivated by that. She couldn't stand doing interviews. The last interview I could find of her was from 2012 mm -hmm. in Vanity Fair by Sam Kashner. And he said, you know, she hasn't given an interview since 1967. Yeah. yeah. And even in that interview, he couldn't really pin her down. He tried, but he couldn't really pin her down. Mm -hmm. I've tried to. I've tried hard to get Are her you, on the did show. Did you contact oh her? I've tried. You know, I've spoken to people who are working with her, who are promoting her shows. And I'm like, maybe I've got the right, you know, maybe I'm the one with yeah. the right angle, you know, and I You're will try. Well, you know what is so funny? I tried to, I wanted to impress you and do <laughs> something different. I wanted to do a deep dive and find out who Marty Rubenstein was. Uh-huh. Because I have... I worked at Chicago Second City as well. I started in uh, Second City in Toronto, and I was traded to Chicago Second City. And mm -hmm. I thought I would be able to contact some of his peers because I used to know them, but a lot of them have passed on. Sure. And I just have to say he died 30 years ago yesterday. Oh, wow. On the day that I was searching his history all day long to try and have a tidbit about him because he's he plays the accompaniment to the eight scenes that are included on the album. Mm-hmm. As you know, as an improviser and a comic, he's every bit a part, as much as intrinsic to what they're doing. Um, I found out that he had um, a jazz trio called the Marty Rubenstein Trio. Okay. Performed at Mr. Kelly's in Chicago. 1958, that's where Mike Nichols met him and asked, well, would you come play with us? And that's how that came about. But um, yeah, he passed away yesterday, 30 years ago yesterday. Wow. Yeah, I was so funny as I was like, who is this guy? And I, I started no. to dig and then I'm like, I can't find enough. I love that no. you, you went far I, enough to at least find out that much. No, you know? but you know what? If you only knew, I spent the whole day. Oh, no. Like this poor guy, he was such an intrinsic part of this whole process. And it would be wonderful to share his legacy in relation to this album because he's been a footnote. Yeah. And I made calls to, um, do you know Jeff and Jane Machowski? I think I reached out to them. The names are familiar, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they're Second City Chicago. They teach out here too. But I tried to track down through the musicians, you know, so I could have s some story to tell you because I have lots of Nichols and May stories, but I don't know anything about them. Yeah. Wow. You know, that's worth digging into. I mean, I've I've done weirder things on this show. So now you're you're giving me, you're giving me some motivation to start digging because there you go. The secret always tends to be on this show. I've interviewed like the sons and daughters of of people who have done yeah. shit that I love, and that is. And I, I'm now doing a whole other podcast with Edie Adams' son that is just interviewing the sons and daughters oh, of celebrities. Oh no way! And I know you did that great Kelly Carlin interview. She's lovely. Oh, thank you, thank you. I think we're going to have her on that show too because might as well because she's got a million stories. Um, oh, she's fabulous, and oh, I so wish good. I had seen. I know she did a one person show about her dad. It was really good. What? And every time she did it, I was out of the country or we're, I never got to see it. I hope she remounts it. Me me too, because I would like to see what it, because I was there for, I think, what is sort of a proto version of it. And actually, you know, one of the things that it exposed me to is something I did not know. I had 
because I am not as versed in SCTV, she played a clip of uh, of um, oh my god, sorry, Rick Moranis doing the best George Carlin impression anybody's ever done. And it's I know, wasn't he great? So mind blowing because you don't. I know. You look at him and you're like, that's not. He's not going to be. Nope. Sorry, he'll blow you out of the water. Wow. No, he's amazing. They were all amazing. Imagine all those people at that time, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, John Candy. I knew all of them. Yeah. Actually played Joe Flaherty's wife on a series that George Lucas produced and Eugene Levy created. Uh-huh. Uh, it was called Maniac Mansion and it was um, oh, yeah. the time top 10 every year it was on the air. But those guys had great stories of mm. scenes they had done or people they had worked with and really the great so what we're talking about here is mom and pop i mean mm-hmm. in and mike were at the beginning they created everything that all of us are obsessed with now all the all the people who's who are into improv are walking in their footsteps and so i want to do this justice yeah, of course i mean it's difficult we've also you know to, just to bring it up i've what the one i have on the wall well it's now hidden by a box but it's an evening with mike nichols and elaine may we've talked about that one probably half a dozen times or yes more. Yeah, um, yeah but i love that this is at least one of the ones do you think this is the first is this the first comedy record you ever heard or is this just the first one that really stuck with you i think it's probably the, i wouldn't say this specific album i have a feeling because i wasn't born when they were in their heyday i was sure. well after that but i think um Nichols and Maya are my first. I didn't know who Steve Martin was and everything till I was like, till I saw I was a little kid and I saw Saturday Night Live and that generation of people. I didn't know who they were, but I do remember the Nichols and May, an evening with Nichols and May, that cover of the mm-hmm. album. I remember the cover of this album, mm-hmm. but I was little, so I don't know. It's just was always there. My parents were closet hipsters. My dad, mortician. Who, yeah, that's a that's a one man one woman show. Mm-hmm. He's he, uh, but he had a terrific sense of humor for working in the dismal trade. He had a terrific sense of humor, and so he had all of these records, and it was in constant rotation. I love that. I love that. I, <clears throat> I mean, you know, it's it's the obvious. Like, of course, of course, you you better have a sense of humor, or you're just gonna, you know, you're gonna be in that casket sooner than anybody else. Yeah, that than anybody be, else. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> holy cow. Do you, when when you think about this record, is there one that first pops out in your mind? Uh, one one particular sketch that you go back to? Yes, and for the reason being, I would say Mysterioso. Mm-hmm. Up for that is there's two foreign spies on a train, um, but I don't know if you know this backstory that that is how they first met. I mean, uh, Mike Nichols was in a production of Miss Julie, mm-hmm. Chicago, with the Compass Players. And he was emoting like crazy at the edge of the stage, you know, and feeling really gross inside because he knew he was just a ham bone and he was embarrassed. And this woman in the third row kept giving him the stink eye. Like he was so intimidated by her, but he was like, yikes. So when the reviews came out, he was worried. He knew he was terrible. And Paul Sills, the director, handed them the review. And of course, it was a rave and he couldn't believe it. And at that point, Elaine May, who was that woman who was staring at him disdainfully through the show, came walking up and went <laughs> over his shoulder and walked away. And he was like really rattled by that. He was like, what's that about? And Paul Sills said, you know, I just wanted to introduce you to the other most hostile person I've ever met. And um, days later, he was walking through the train station and she was sitting on a bench and he said, may I sit down? And she said, if you wish. And they did it all the way back to her apartment. This, and this is where, and so actually this is Mysterioso. That scene, they're reviving that improvisation uh, with a musician, but this is their honeymoon scene because this is how they met. That was the circumstances that they met and they just expanded it. Wow. That's the yeah, nerdiest right? comedy shit I've ever heard. Yeah. It also sounds like the prelude to a relationship that never happened. It really like two, when two comedians like click like that, I don't know if they were into each other. I don't know enough if they had any kind of history like that, but that does sound like that's going to go somewhere. It didn't. Yeah. Um, 
reports all over their friends and the people that I knew who knew them, but mm -hmm. I didn't know them, so I wasn't there. It was a one-time thing, and then they kind of realized that they were more attuned as partners than they were in a relationship, and yep. that happened. Makes sense. It makes it because there is also a danger of like, this is going to stop being funny unless, you know, yeah. the tension's always got to yeah. be there. Tension is a, is such a big part of the. I also like, though, thematically, this record, it's very easy to pick apart in uh, an evening with or examine doctors. The it's they very quickly are in some kind of either uh, semi-romantic relationship or mother-son <laughs> it almost yeah, always yeah, yeah. is that that's remember not as much me it's your mother yeah that <laughs> remember me that's the best opening line love it <laughs> and this this is this has i think i feel like less of that it's got a little more like let's just play with maybe it's people on a date here here and there or uncomfortable situations like a boss and a secretary which is the first one which is yeah the boss and the secretary kind of creeped me out at the end because what I thought was really funny, Marty's accompanying this cocktail piano scene with this kind of lilting, and then it leaves off on a really optimistic high note, and you realize the character Elaine has played, she's so naive, doesn't have a clue. Mm -hmm. You know she's heading off to certain doom, and this guy's going to jump her. Mm -hmm. Ended on a little, like, little piano. Right. That is so, was so at odds... So to find irony in the way they buttoned that scene and the irony laid under with the music in that year, in the, in the 1950s, it's like, it's so far ahead of its time. It's light years ahead of everything else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is at least in America, the beginning of the kind of sick humor craze. And it's, uh, oh, is it dark? Oh, is it so dark? So uncomfortable. But she, and the other thing too is, you know, it, at the very least, it never comes across as, because this can happen in a, in, a, in any kind of comedy scene or even you see it happen in the world of D&D, &D, which is kind of improv based. Um, if somebody is not good at what they're doing, you can have one party be very hostile and make it an actually uncomfortable thing for the comedy partner. But they're both on board. Yeah. That's such a huge thing. Yeah. You know? I mean, like it's it's so I don't know. It's so beautiful. All of those eight scenes. Mm hmm. I have to say, every single one, if they did them now, they would be incredibly timeless, hip, cutting edge. It's not sure. I think they've aged. Did you find that they seemed? I like mean, in terms of like, because, you know, again, they're, they're like, just to go back to that first one, <clears throat> yeah, it ends on a dark note, but it's not in a way where it's like, isn't it super funny that this terrible thing could happen to her? It's just like, no, this is an examination of uh, a creep and an innocent lady. It is just an examination of a scene. It's yeah. not, it's not signing they're never on. actually, they're never actually consciously going for a laugh. Right. The laughs right. just happen. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought that was so interesting. There was a couple of funny things in the, they played off in that Mysterioso scene. They played off a sense of urgency. Smile. Uh, is it, what are, I, I always travel with the window open. And then he says, it's dangerous to travel with the window open because there's always smut flying. And then she says, not if you leave your elbows inside. E-L-B-O-W-S. It was like so, how is that funny? Like, right, right. Like when you read it, when you see it on paper, what I think is brilliant about them is they never tried that hard and all of the laughs are derived from character or behavior mm -hmm. that time period that's amazing for sure yeah i mean every other record that i have from that time period again most of them are terrible but they're all they're just well first of all it's mostly stand-up there's not yeah. there wasn't really anything sketch or improv coming out at the time well except shelly berman did the monologues that were like oh, your, your cat I, you know, what happened last night? I don't remember. I can't, I'm paraphrasing it, but yeah. Yeah, like the, the, yeah, that's true. That is a good point. I always sort of, my brain always forgets that there can be one person sketch, essentially. And he was definitely that when he wasn't doing just straight stand up, which was rare. Yeah. Uh, we should talk more about Shelly Berman on this podcast, honestly. He doesn't get yeah. brought up that much. Um, the, and again, the, the music is perfect. 
this is one of those things that I don't have a skill for. I can maybe sing, but the idea when I see people like Eben Schletter here, who yeah. I've interviewed, oh my God, just who can just fly and can play any instrument needed. Um, you know, I don't, I don't get that skill at all. Makes no sense to me. And to play along, like they're part of the scene. Oh yeah, and in, in points I felt I was trying to see if I could isolate the points. There's times where he's initiating the action mm-hmm. with the way he's playing, or he's creating a sense of speed, or a with what he's doing, and they have to respond to it. But there's so much give and take, not just between them, but between them and Marty Rubenstein. Mm-hmm. It's, it's impressive. The, the the yeah that everybody's doing it one the idea that it is basically beat poetry over ragtime is to me one I of know. the funniest things brilliant I've ever heard. I know brilliant and then uh, uh what did he say oh and then and he was doing it like Carl Sandburg mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard Carl Sandburg read but when I was a kid they had a record of him when I was a boy the poets you know like he that declamatory is really, really funny. Yeah, I thought that was a really inspired. And they're doing a lot of, if I'm not mistaken, this is one of my favorite things of the period where you could get away with doing a bunch of um, <laughs> ad slogans as part of your comedy, just because TV was so everywhere in a different way and ad slogans were this new thing that were a part of your life. I can't yeah. even remember now which one. Sh- oh, see the USA and your Chevrolet is in there for sure. Yeah, or Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. That's right. They had Roto-Rooter, Roto-Rooter. Yeah, they had, uh, that was pretty brilliant. I mean, yeah, because advertising would have been new. Mm-hmm. Vision would only have been a decade old. You wouldn't think of doing that. And they inspired, that was an inspired bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, let's see here. My God, my notes are ugly. I can barely read them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Let's see. You know, uh, I also love, too, that they lean in. They do this thing that wouldn't be the style now in improv. I feel like improv, well, okay, I don't want to generalize too much. But we tend to be fairly naturalistic, but they do lean into the melodrama heavily and the hamminess when they want to. If it's like we're making fun of the idea of this performance. You know what I think it is? They have a great grasp of genre. Mm Mm-hmm just commit to the genre they take it beyond the genre and then the comedy comes out of it like the whole the one with the dentist there's a scene where a woman goes to a dentist and it's clear they've been having an affair and she says something like you didn't see a woman with a rotten tooth when you looked at me you saw a woman yeah it's um it's all a takeoff i don't you're probably too young to remember this but there was a movie called brief encounter Mm -hmm. yeah i do not know about it now oh it's a british movie that's why they're feigning the British accents and the whole, it's all about the stiff upper lip to leave the man at the end. So at the end of the scene, when she's bravely talking through her tears, when Elaine is the dental patient is bravely talking through her tears, it's a takeoff on, on brief encounters. So I think what they're doing is they're satirizing styles that hadn't necessarily been done before. They're taking the genre and then turning it on its ear. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I also love, I just love their silly English accents that are very much yeah. the same between oh, Reba, Reba, Reba. It's just such a, it's this weird, <laughs> yeah. this weird, almost mid-Atlantic, not entirely English twist on it. Oh, it's so funny. Do you know what I, I don't know if this is an inside joke, but what I caught out of this record that I was like, oh, I don't know the answer to that. Whenever they're referring to some other guy, they call him Maris. Have you noticed that? I did not. It happened two or three times on this record, different scenes. And I laughed out loud because I was like, oh, they're carrying it from scene to scene. Because again, another level. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to think. I wonder, I would like to know, and again, maybe it's in the book. I do need to pick up that most recent book. But uh, if they did all these in one session or if this is over the course of a week or two, I'd love to know. I know. I couldn't find that anywhere. Mm-hmm feeling this was over the course of a few days for sure because they have now here's the other thing did they plan their outs did they plan the right because there's some really tight concise outs that they're so when you do stumble on them as you know sometimes it's so random it's a miracle mm-hmm. i wonder if they planned the outs first and then they knew that's where they were headed i don't know right 
And, you know, and they also have to be aware roughly. They're like, we have to keep this under four minutes or we have to keep this under blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It just, it, 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 but they do, they get, they do get the chance to build organically. Again, I think, I think, I feel like in your email, you were mentioning that this is the one of their albums that feels the most fully improvised. Like it feels the most loose. It does. It feels like, because there's just so many phrases that there's no way they craft, there's no way that they, um, what's the word for it, crafted it. It's like, it just came out that way. I'm trying to see sure. if I can find an example of it. Uh, oh yeah. There's a scene called Bach to Bach where uh -huh. you don't realize they're in bed. You think it's two pretentious intellectuals. Um, one, um, I think one of them says, it's serene. It has a mathematical certainty to it. Things like that. And then he says, oh, I'm falling off the bed. And then the, re the reveal is that they're in bed together. And this is their post-coital talk. Because uh, she says things like, aggressiveness need not be hostile. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And then she says, um, which made me laugh because it's so it's such a non sequitur. It's so random, but it's something that they do time and again, and it's brilliant. She said, um, I can never believe that Bartok died on Central Park West. Isn't that ugly? He goes, ugly, ugly, ugly. Ooh. It's like... <laughs> it's such a stupid, random thing to say. How is that funny? Right. How, how can I explain how, why that's funny? I don't know, but it's funny. It is. And there, if there's so much in each of these albums, I feel like there's at least a few gentle or not so gentle jabs at the New York intellectual scene that they were both clearly a part of, but also were like, oh God, do you people know what you sound like? <laughs> like they yeah, yeah, very yeah. much are like, you, you can't, I don't think you can pick apart you can't do that bit without having a little bit of that in you, like a little yeah. bit of that pretentious asshole in you, but you know, yeah. here's where I get to pull it out and use it for something funny. Yeah. <laughs> the, oh, yeah. just, there was one great line. I remember from that scene where she goes, uh, it's so beautiful. It almost hurts. And he <laughs> says, beauty often does. Yeah, <laughs> I wrote that one down too. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's funny. And they say it again with such such certainty that they 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 believe their own bullshit so much. It's yeah, perfect. The yeah. Uh, and they can get so much. And again, any good team can do this. But you you have options, and you you can be at opposing. You can be at opposite ends. You can be the mother son that they often do. You can be a love, lovers that are. But then in that bit, they're both just the same pair of assholes, and it's still as yeah, funny. yeah. It's not conflict so much as it is just. It's a conflict with society because these people are barely functioning as humans. <laughs> you know what is interesting that I find, and I found it in all of these scenes. When I was coming up through Second City, Del Close always told us that Elaine May said to him, when you don't know what you're doing in a scene, there's two ways to go. Fuck them or fight them. Make that choice, right? Yeah. So... I'm sorry, I'm apologizing to all the underage viewers for my language, but so what happens is he and Mike Nichols said he finally figured out that for her, every scene is a seduction, a confrontation or a negotiation. And their most successful scenes fall into those categories. And I don't know if you found this, but I've been on I've been in many an improv circumstance where I'm just, my my life is flashing before my eyes because I'm with somebody that's just not, I don't know, forwarding the action. And when you make a strong choice, like fuck them or fight them, you end up propelling the scene along. But they did this in every single scene on this album. So I never realized it until I did a deep dive on it when I was looking it over. It's very interesting. How long did you, were you uh, trained by Del Close? I think you're the only sec, only the second person I've ever spoken to who really actually got taught by Del Close for any extended period of time. Yeah, Del, okay. So Del came, I would say, what year was this? In the 1980s, he came to Toronto to give us a workshop. We had a show that was, I would say it like had to be 86 or 87. That's how long ago this was. And um, I had heard of him by reputation and I was afraid quite frankly mm -hmm. i might say and i remember that he sat on the edge of the stage and took his jacket off and rolled up his sleeves and i was just like oh my god because he had track old track marks that formed scars up his arms mm -hmm. 
And, uh, but he did something so brilliant. We had this show. Mike Myers was in the cast and my friend Linda Cash, who went on to do the Chris Guest movies with me. But she, um, he, we had a show that was just inert. It was just laying there. And we had to do something with it, but we didn't know what. So, Dill, don't be frightened by the fear. Close. Took a piece of chalk and went on the stage and he wrote areas. With chalk, he put hubris, lust, fear, rage, everything all over the stage. And he made us all walk over it and memorize the map. He erased it. Then that night, wherever we landed, we were compelled to use the subtext of whatever spot we landed on and deliver whatever random lines those were with that subtext. And that show went on to win a Adora. You guys have Tonys. And, mm -hmm. But to me, he blew my mind because that was the greatest lesson in subtext I've ever seen. Holy shit. Yeah, it was spectacular. That's not something that should work. <laughs> it shouldn't work. It does. It did. I mean, great. I don't know how that's even possible. But what I learned from it was if you take a deeper dive when you're improvising and your mood doesn't match your action or your words, sometimes it's even more interesting, even more dangerous, mm -hmm. being very superficial. Yeah. Good God. Yeah, but I mean, Mike, if you ever meet Mike Myers, ask him that story. He'll tell you the same thing. We were both like blown away. And then he was supposed to give us not notes one night and he didn't show up. He wasn't there. We were like, I wonder where he went. So we were all goofing around backstage and Mike, as a joke, took a piece of chalk and wrote a pen, drop, drew a pentacle on the dressing room floor. And then we heard that uh, people were coming backstage. So we like erased it. And the doors, this is the how we first met Dell. I swear to you, the doors blew open. He came in in a black coat with his hair all wild. And uh, he said, I feel drawn to stand here and pick the spot where the pentacle had been. <laughs> and we were all like, our eyes were as wide as saucers. We were all just, okay. But everything he said, has stayed with me all these years and has been, he was the greatest improv teacher. He's a weirdo. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Dill. Sorry, Dill. Wherever you are. <laughs> he was a weirdo for sure, but he, he certainly, he knew comedy. Like the back of his hand, he knew comedy. And who walks up in an airport but Sammy Davis Jr. She discovered Matt Groening. Without your mom, we might not have had The Simpsons. Yeah, and uh, I have an Elton John story. You know who noticed that also was Jonathan Winters. Your dad was the first band I dropped acid to. There was Buddy Hackett, and Joey Bishop, and Jerry Vale, and Corbett Monica. And those are the ones that, that stick out in mm -hmm. my mind. So, of course, I watched Mork and Mindy. He comes over, Mork's here, Mork's here, oh my God. And he was hysterical. You're listening to Rarefied Air. I, again, it's, it's rare I get these kind of stories, please. Well, then let me tell you one more because it's so good. Um, he uh, he missed giving us notes one night. And I was like, well, Del, I thought you were going to come after the show and give us notes. And he was like, well, I, I was dancing naked with a coven of witches at the Scarborough Bluffs that I met in a bar. We're like, oh, yeah, of course you were. Of course you were. So there's wow. that. Holy crap. And so mm -hmm. there's, uh, yeah, there's this, what I like about, he's one of those few people in comedy where the legends are always, uh, they're always couched in reality. Nobody really sugarcoats um, his stories. And I think that's the reason why I like hearing them because it's never, he was a comedy god. It's like, he was a fuck up who was a genius. And, yeah. and but the two were both there always. And people tend to be realistic about it. And I think that is a, it's a nice story to hear that he's a human. Yeah. He was, you know, and you know that when he died, he tried to will his skull to the Goodman Theater to play Yorick. And they were like, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot. I think we'll just settle for a plastic prop head. Thank you. But um, that's just so dull. That's just who he was. Yeah. I think he was, I think Elaine was, he was, all the guys were in love with Elaine. How as, could you not be? Yeah. Right. She's a goddess. Yeah. So 
he was um he so he and mike never quite you know the story was that uh they were going they were going to new york as a group of four and they had posed for pictures they had staged the pictures the promo pictures it was supposed to be nancy ponder del close uh mike nichols and elaine may and, and i guess they said hey you guys let's pool our money we'll go on ahead and we'll send for you and they never heard from them again whether that's true or not and can be confirmed uh-huh. is our grapes or is that i don't know right ouch ouch oh those are the stories those are the stories you're never going to get a good answer to you hear it from uh, one source you're never going you're never going to hear the other people oh yeah no we did that unless <laughs> you were there yeah right yeah of course right know. wow uh i mean honestly at the same time i what i'd like I, why well, i need to read that book on mike nichols because i would like to know what people thought of of him because he's boy oh boy when i listen to him i'm like oh these are choices i would make and oh boy is i feel like i can read anxiety in everything he does yeah you can in a a good way in a good way he channeled it he used it and he channeled it and i didn't know all those stories i mean it would have been enough if he had taken he took a whooping whooping cough vaccine and lost his hair and eyebrows when he was four oh wow so he wore a wig all of his life, but he didn't get good wigs until Elizabeth Taylor uh, during um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf mm-hmm. introduced him to her wig maker. And then from then on, he was set. But before that, it was like, is there a dead animal nesting on your head kind of wigs, you know, in the pictures. And um, she she really changed that for him. And he, everybody I know who ever worked with him or knew him, and I've now I known a lot of people who have. I never was that lucky. Um, they all said the same thing. He was always the smartest guy in the room. He always would um, be able to steer people in the right direction by telling an anecdote. He had more stories than anybody. He'd tell an anecdote, and everybody would instantly get it. Wow. So instead of going, what are you doing? Like, don't do that. Right. Sort of help them discover it. Mm-hmm. Wow. The... <laughs> I have uh, I had forgotten there's this bit that, by the way, here here's one thing that doesn't necessarily age, if only because of you have to know that in 1958, the United States did not yet have zip codes. OK, but to yes. me, uh, in the tango scene where he's I, I, oh, I, I bet you don't know your zip, your postal zone. I bet you. <laughs> See, and that's that's the great thing about that tango scene. Again, what they did, what is comedic about it? They've taken the most passionate dance form. And underneath this, they're talking about postal zones, zip codes, what was in your fortune cookie, and then every once in a while he'll go, two, three, like which makes me laugh so hard. Like he's picking up the rhythm again. He's going to go back. And then they ended it on Olay. So I have a feeling Mm -hmm. to know this. I don't know this. They buttoned that scene with Nichols going, Olay. I think they recorded that after. It seems right. Like, I don't think it came to a logical conclusion, but I don't know. Don't forget, there's another, that great scene. Again, this is what I was saying about how they find the genre. Mm-hmm. And then they attach everything to it. Mm-hmm. About the the woman with the psychosomatic paralysis. Uh, you know, with the, they had a weird echoey voice effect. Mm-hmm. Psychiatrist and his patient. And he's saying to her, what happened? On the day of your sister's wedding, think, child, think. Think, child. Well, nothing happened. I don't know what you're talking about. And then, did anything go wrong with your beautiful sister you love so much? Just the whole, he invests so much um, into the genre that it pays off in spades. Mm -hmm. She's not paralyzed. She actually tripped her sister going up the aisle. And then is having a psychosomatic paralysis because of it. And she admits that she hates her. So I hate her. I hate her. I hate her now. And he says, give me your hand, child. Give me your hand. You can walk. I can walk. I can't move my arms. <laughs> <laughs> and the bit, too. Like, there's literally I ate a banana and I put the peel in my purse. <laughs> yeah. She throws it on the floor and then trips her. What's the bit where she's describing the foot that trips her? The, the second oh, toe yeah, is two inches longer than the, the 
It was one. two inches longer. Than it was a woman's foot with a second toe, two inches longer than the first. It was immense. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a simple. It's a bit that I wouldn't. That again. It, that's one of the reasons this doesn't feel planned. It just feels. Who writes this bit? I wouldn't sit and write this bit and find it funny. No. If, if I was doing it with somebody and we were back and back and forth, we'd find the funny within the performance. Exactly. You know, it's because I'm a big fan of word choice comedy. I like writing sketches with funny word choice. But mm -hmm. in improv, you have to depend so much on the energy of the other person feeding off of it, hopefully giving them something back. You know? Yeah. It's like carving in snow. You just hope it's going to be lucky that it's mm -hmm. going to work out. A lot of times it doesn't, and you just gotta kinda go, okay, I'm gonna pick up and carry on. You really don't know if it's gonna work. But but like, what I did notice is that um, they're stylistically, with the two-person scenes, they could go anywhere. They could mm -hmm. go anywhere. The, there's that, what is that little, there's a scene at the end where she's a little kid. She does great character work, by the yeah. way. Yeah. It sounds like a, a child. Like, you can't believe it's a grown woman. It's ridiculous. I know. It's so good. Yeah. And also, that is the darkest of the sketches on this Yeah, one. isn't it? He's basically telling his little girl that he's leaving for good. Mm-hmm. Your daddy had an argument last week with your Uncle Roscoe and your Uncle Larry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then she says, well, what, what's going to happen, daddy? And he goes, uh, you ask your mummy or ask your Uncle Six Fingers. Like what? So he's obviously a gangster going on the run or going to the pen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he's abandoning his daughter. And then you think, oh my God, this is so sad and wrenching. And then they buttoned it with Elaine saying, well, there he goes again. Like it happens all the time. So fucked up. Yeah, it's totally... Uh, your uncle, your uncle Roscoe, and your uncle. uncle oh Roscoe. my God, so good, Harry. so funny. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, I love this. I really, I'm wondering now because it's stuck so much in your mind. I'm, I own this. I own this record. I was looking. One of my oldest records. I, I don't remember any of these sketches. I must have heard it. <clears throat> I must have heard it once and then forgotten it and thought I'd been listening to an evening with or something, because. I'm now realizing, looking back at some of my own sketches, I'm like, oh, I've stolen this format. Me too. I did a scene with Mike Myers where we were like, way to go, Chevy, using ad slogans all the way through. And it's only when I did a deep dive going over this the second time that I went, well, that's where we got this from. Like, like I never made the connection back then or yeah. looking back at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a doctor who would only use ad slogans. <laughs> Chevy. I don't, and I was thinking, oh, I thought we were so original. We weren't. <laughs> and then I also thought I oh, would do that a lot in scenes. I'll be like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Oh, mm -hmm. And I realized that's Mike Nichols' bit. He Absolutely. I, he says, yeah, sure, once at least on every album. Yeah. In yeah, different sure. ways. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Like he's, yeah, but sure. It's, I love it so much. Yeah. I, I don't know so why that's one of those things I notice every time. I never noticed it till this time. And then I thought, oh, I was totally cribbing him. I was totally imitating what he was doing. And I wasn't consciously aware of it. That's how deep they get. That's how deep they get that you kind of go, oh, I guess I'm not that imaginative. <laughs> I did a whole sketch. I improvised with myself where I was a man and a woman. And I later pitched the, the voice up for the woman a little bit. And it was just supposed to be this this. Uh, stayed English argument about nothing and ends up being an advertisement for tea and that tea is the <laughs> brand of my sketch and it's just a very simple and they're just angry at each other and I'm like and if I I'll listen to it later today I'm like oh my god that's 100 it's only a Nichols and May sketch that I was doing yeah dentist brief encounter mm -hmm. I'm there doing brief encounter but you know what's funny we are imitating them or, or deriving scenes from them, but at the time that they came up, because television and media wasn't so everywhere, mm. they were drawing from real life. They were drawing from going to the theater. They were drawing from that stuff. We're an imitation of an imitation of an imitation. Three generations down the road, mm -hmm. we're imitating what we've seen as opposed to what we've experienced 
But I think the reason they are so sharp is because they were the first and they weren't imitating anyone. Yeah. Creating it. Yeah. That's yeah. That, I think that's why these come up so much on the show. And I'm also happy that they come up more because again, it's it becomes a very white male show. And at least it's a woman. <laughs> at least there's a woman involved in these. And she's just, I don't know that I can't think of her and Lily Tomlin might be my two favorite female comedians, at least in terms of the records I own and the characters that they can embody. And you know what? I have to introduce you to, have you heard of Ruth Draper? No, I have not. I've heard of, yes, but I don't know her work. Please. Well, there's a two CD set. I can even lend it to you if you mm -hmm. want to borrow it. I've got it here somewhere. Um, she performed her character monologues. She died in 1956 at the age of 72. Mm -hmm. She was a rich heiress who entertained um, people in her family drawing room and then ended up playing for Kings and Queens and touring the world and wow. James and Henry Miller and all these people tried to write for her and they couldn't, she could only do her own thing. And anytime it comes up where there's a Ruth Draper revival, mm -hmm. wants to do the scenes, they always end up bailing. But Paul told me, Paul Dooley told me that Annette Benning had done a Ruth Draper uh, evening in Los Angeles a few years ago. I don't know how I didn't hear about it or know about it, but uh, I know that Lily Tomlin, Whoopi Goldberg, Mike Nichols played Ruth Draper for his casts. He would put the CD on, turn off the lights and let them listen to the timing, to her intonations, Wow. her ins and outs, how she, she never had them written down. They were never committed to paper. She basically was doing what Nichols and May do. She wow. her way through these monologues and it's amazing. I mean, she play every time she played on Broadway, she would be sold out. I know I read that John Gilgood as a young man saw her perform and was so blown away. He was like, I I could never do what she did. And Holy so cow. she's been lost to the sands of time, but she needs to have a she needs to have her day again too, because she, Mike Nichols, and in the book, he talks about this, which is the new book, the Mark Harris book, the um, uh, Mike Nichols of Life. He talks about how he played Ruth Draper for his casts. And I used to play Ruth Draper for my Second City students. And she, Lily Tomlin claims that after she heard Ruth Draper, that's when she started performing that way. Holy cow. Yeah, she's the... She's so, she's in the lineage of all of these people. She's mm -hmm. yeah, she's amazing. But she never married. She um, yeah, she died at the age of seventy-two. They never committed. She was never on film. Mm -hmm. I could only find a footage of her that's silent. But she uh, she recorded these when she just shortly before she died. So when she's playing a young girl and a child and an old lady and all these different characters. You cannot believe it's a 72 year old woman. You can't even believe it's the same person. Wow. And John wow. Singer Sargent saw her in a show and did a famous sketch of her and was like blown away. He, I think it's in his memoirs. He talks about he's never seen anything like it. It was just unbelievable. And that's what they're doing. They're basically walking in her footsteps, but she was for them. Yeah. Oh, that's remarkable. Okay. Well, now you've given me several people to dig up. Yeah, yeah, dig yeah. into not dig up that sounded weird dig uh, up yeah <laughs> dig up too that's your whole new podcast Diggle. there you go uh okay so I, I i have to do this anybody who listens know that if knows that if i have a, a canadian guest on the show i have to ask uh their opinions on or experiences with canadian content regulations because i'm fascinated with it yeah you know what i well, I didn't emigrate from Canada until the 1990s, but up to that point, I'd think, what the hell? Like, why do we have it? And now I get it. And mm -hmm. away from the country, we're next, we were living next door all that time to a behemoth, like a gigantic nation that we're very small. You know, there's as many people in Canada as there is in the state of California, and it's the largest country in the world since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, right? Since mm -hmm. the wall, you know, um, and so I couldn't understand the law. I thought, well, this is so restrictive. And now looking back on that, that law made us CTV possible. 
it's in the hall possible all of that other it would be homogenous american you know there's culturally we we sound the same we look the same we speak the same and yet we are not the same yeah. canada's a socialist country i grew up in a socialist country and then when i came here it was like holy cow this place is different um so what was horrible is actually a good thing and they did it to preserve a canadian voice but i didn't see that at the time now i see it now as an older person but in my 20s and 30s i was like what's wrong with please you know and now i'm i understand because we couldn't compete we we never had show business you guys had show business we didn't really have it mm -hmm. we had the forest rangers which was a show about a bunch of kids up in the woods like if there's not a snowmobile or an elk it isn't a canadian entertainment so right. everything else they had to make space for it you know and i didn't support it now i do yeah no i mean i i love it i'm fascinated with it just because it's not a thing that it's not a thing we would need because Americans act like we're the default. It's the way white people are everywhere else, everywhere. Uh, it's it's a very much a, it's it's a very privileged stance to take, and that's why I'm fascinated with it and fascinated with what it's given us in terms of yes, SC, SCTV, but also specifically, do I have it here? I can't pull it out, but the Great White North album. Uh, the, those just Bob and Doug McKenzie were also making fun of Canadian content while yes. also taking full advantage of it. Yes. I, I, and that's one of the best comedy albums I've ever heard, by the way. Oh, it's, I know. Isn't it great? It's too good. It's take up to the great white nose. Take up. It's a beauty way to go. Yeah, so good. <laughs> Nobody's ever sang the song on here. Thank you. That's good. See, yeah. Remember, My that's favorite. how memorable that fucking thing is. Well, you know, I'm very lucky because uh, I got to improvise with all of those people. All of the SCTV people would come back to the second city when I was on stage there. Awesome. I've known Catherine since I was 20. Oh and you gosh. since I was 20. And you know, it's like it was if you saw them improvise together, oh mm -hmm. boy. Boy howdy. That's all I can say. I saw them do a bunch of that SCTV cast, do scenes at reunions that just blew oh. my mind. I, I no, I can't even imagine. I I'm now looking. Do you appear anywhere on any comedy albums yourself? Because I'm realizing I should have looked that up. I'm trying to think if I do. Do I? Because I'm looking your name up on discogs.com and I'm trying to see. I don't think I do. Okay. Yeah, Damn. I don't think I do. Damn it. Although the... I do appear on the Kids in the Hall a fair bit here and there. And right. They, um, what are yeah, I don't think I don't think I'm on any recording. That's crazy. That's great. You know, again, it, once you get past a certain period of time in terms of when people started, it is less and less likely. Honestly, after the 70s, it's less and less likely it's even a thing. I know. And uh, it's a I'm, shame because when you listen to how beautifully this was produced, oh, a great so the music worked with what they did. Oh, it's just it's gorgeous. Maybe there needs to be a throwback or you know what I'm thinking is going to happen because of the pandemic. I'm thinking things will go simpler. Things will, it's not, entertainment will get smaller in a way on some levels in that um, I'm thinking that people are going to probably uh, do more live performance either on video at home or whatever. It's going to be a whole different thing, but something's going to come out of this that will inspire work like this. I know it. Somewhere right now, somebody is doing something amazing. We just haven't heard it yet. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I years ago, a friend of mine and I <laughs> were seriously considering, could we do a cover act of Nichols? <laughs> we were like, we just love these bits so much. We just, oh, it would be so much fun, but it would be also antithetical to what the spirit of it is. Too bad, you know, because there's it's such good material. If you guys yeah. revived it and did a tour of it or people would it's still timeless it has not aged i mean it has aged a bit but sure but not to a degree that it's um impenetrable or impossible to recreate it's really i mean they are polished you know that is a good point except for this album they're not as as you know this one i again i like the lack of the, the less polish that is on this very yeah. much but the other ones for sure there are just some bits like the um the telephone yeah. operator bit is yeah. Ooh, maybe my favorite thing that they've ever done. Oh, yeah. And I think that, I mean, Lily Tomlin, obviously. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, she's not going to say that's what inspired me. That's where it came from. Sure. It just did. That's, it's just the provenance and it's there. Yeah. There's so many great bits and, um, but yeah, definitely look at that AFI. My God, I was just dying. She was so brilliant. Yeah. You know, and possibly at the time, 25 years older than I am now and sharper than anybody in that room. It was incredible. It's insane. I love that so much. Um, do you, would you mind for a split second talking about how you got involved with uh, Christopher Guest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because you're in so many of those great films and you're brilliant sure. in them? Um, well, I was traded down to Second City. We had a Second City here in Los Angeles. It didn't survive. Um, yeah. And that cast was Ryan Stiles, uh, Robin Duke from Saturday Night Live came to be in it. Um, anyway, there was about five or six people in the cast and they brought me down from Toronto as a ringer to, um, to, to be in the show, help them write a show. And um, so I did, I was there for quite a few months and we did a show that um, one night, a benefit for Melathion Spring and our show was called Lord of the Medflies. And um, I went out to take, everybody was acting weird. Everybody's show was so off. I was like, I don't know who's out in the audience. You guys don't tell me, but I don't know what's wrong with any of you. <laughs> well, you should just be hitting your beats and not blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and when the lights came up and I went out to take suggestions, Steve Martin, Danny DeVito, Billy Chris, Rob Reiner. No, thanks. For guest, all these people. And so... Oh, Ed Bagley Jr. was there that night. So I took the suggestions and then the audience went out for the intermission and he was just there staring at me like that. And I'm like, oh my God. But the, word, the weird part was, as Ryan Stiles said, you conjured him because we were there writing the new show and getting ready to do it. So I said, I don't have time to go home. Let's just stay here all day. And everybody's like, okay. I said, hey, you guys, let's have a Christopher Guestival. And everybody's like, oh, great idea. So we went up the street to the video store and rented Sticky Fingers, Spinal Tap, and Boyfriends. And we watched them all afternoon, not knowing he would be there that night. Holy shit. The next day, he phoned the theater because he had recommended me to Norman Lear to play, to come in and read for Jody Hartman. They were making a new show about the daughter of Mary Hartman called Jody Hartman, Jody Hartman. Oh my God. Yeah, Jody Hartman, the news and the storyteller. So I, um, I went in and met Norman Lear, um, and that's how it started. Um, I didn't have papers to work. I was a Canadian citizen. I was only able to work on stage because of oh. the I had. Um, then later on, I went back to Canada, and I got a phone call, and it was a casting director saying that Christopher Guest was doing a series with Rob Reiner called Morton and Hayes. Mm -hmm. The black and white. Did you ever see that? I've only seen like one of them, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good, right? Yeah. So um, they wanted me to be the girl and, and say, listen, guys, you know what's going to, and that kind of thing. And um, I was, I had just booked Maniac Mansion and I couldn't do it. I think Jennifer Jason Lee got that part. Wow. And um, so that's how I, and then coincidentally, Eugene hired me for Maniac Mansion. I did that. And then, when it was done, I got a call from Christopher Guest's office down here to come in, and then there was Chris and Eugene, and I had just uh, starred on a series for Eugene that I got nominated for Best Actress, and and um, and Chris, their interview consisted of just like there was no audition. It was sort of like, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, just chit chat, and then um, that's how I got uh, into Waiting for Government. Wow. That yeah. that is the exact audition process I've heard every time. Yeah, I had a. Oh, well, who did you hear from? I gotta know. There's this gentleman. So I have this podcast about extra work because I've done oh. a lot of extra work. And oh, you yeah? have. Yeah, and there's a gentleman named Tommy Bechtold, and he he won this award for being an extra, which was kind of like it, it was this weird way to advertise Stanley. Uh, um, like thermoses basically it's a weird it's hard to explain <laughs> but they're like we've been in so many movies we should do uh, an award for the best extra they did it for one year just to as a gimmick right and i and he brought up oh yeah i was in mascots and i'm like oh tell me a bit about the audition process and and he somebody fortunately 
told him, don't mention what a fan you are of Christopher Guest when you go in the room. He just wants to talk uh, to you. Don't yeah. fawn. And he didn't. And they just talked about the nice jacket he was wearing, bullshitted, and he ended up in the movie. And yeah. um because my instinct would be the idiot thing. I mean, Mr. Gast, I'm just such a big fan. And, you know, I, I would lose it. It would never happen. Um, so I think he gets that all the time. And I get the impression that when he goes through airports and stuff, people are coming up, well, you want me to turn it all the way up to 11? And oh, of course. Like that? And it's like, of course. I think it must really get on his nerves. So I'm <laughs> sure that's imagine. part of it. Yeah, of course. But of course speaking of that, <laughs> you were saying about, uh, what did you just say? The award show. Oh, yeah, it was this weird, this Stanley Thermos company that made this extra award. Oh, okay, so look up, for all the fans, too, you got to look this up. In 1958 or 1959, have you seen the clip where Elaine May, they're at the Emmys, and mm -hmm. Elaine May says, uh, she comes out as an actress to announce the category for the most mediocrity of the year, and... Mike Nichols wins. His name is Lionel Klutz, and he's mm. way at the back, so he has to move his way through the crowd, like step over people, rush down to the stage. Um, and he gives an acceptance speech for always taking the notes of every suit that he ever talked to, and they never got a letter, and they're 10 years on the air, and all this stuff, and it was just, <laughs> it's hilarious. It's, just, it's really funny now, but it's older than I am, and it's still funny, and I'm like, there's something they had some kind of alchemy some kind of timelessness that they weren't just making cultural references it was really pretty that's brilliant so good i love it oh that's delightful you've given me so much stuff to look up i have to make sure i have everything notated i do okay. um okay first of all thank you for doing this um second of all would you mind telling the audience why listen to this album if they've never heard Nichols and may before maybe what's a good recommendation um if they've never heard Nichols and May before. Or a comedy album before. What if we got some weird yeah. listening who's never heard this, a comedy album before? This, this is the closest that they will get to sitting in the audience. Well, it isn't an evening with Nichols and May. It is different. But it's the closest thing they'll get to seeing the genie in the bottle, hearing it as it happens, and knowing that it didn't take a team of people to write it, it didn't take a bunch of sycophants to laugh at everybody else's joke to make sure the joke played. It didn't take, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's and that in its purity and in its innocence in that way, it's just the interplay between them. And I don't know, it's so inspiring. I think you'll be inspired, you'll be uplifted, you'll laugh, but you'll hear I thought what Steve Martin said once about them was true. It's the first time he had ever heard irony in somebody's voice. Wow. And true. Like, they, they're they not saying things funny. They're not saying funny things. They're saying things funny. Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, they're, um, they're, they're on a different level where they don't rely on jokes, cliched setups, and deliveries. That's just too obvious. And they take it to a level of artistry that I appreciate, you know, coming from that same discipline and coming from that same school of improv and having done a lot of two-person scenes, one of them, actually one of them was very famous, um, but it never touched anything that they did because they were so in tune. They were just perfectly in balance with each other. It's perfect. Perfect. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for for doing for talking, picking this album that again I'm pretty sure I've actually heard before and thought I hadn't. So this is it's nice to rediscover something. Um, why don't you tell people if they can find you online, where they can find you online, anything that might be coming up or something recently in the past that they should watch? What's something they should watch that you're in? Not everything's deader than vaudeville. Nowhere to find me. Nowhere to see me. <laughs> Nothing to do. Move along here. Folks. <laughs> no, all you can. I'm my IMDb page is up. I'm not a web presence, and I don't know what will, what auditioning will be like. What the new world will be like when we all come out of our caves and squint into the sunlight. I don't know what it's going to be like. I guess I'll see. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you can look up. Well, no, I don't really have anything to say beyond that. Just, <laughs> but do read, do read that new Mike Nichols book. It's wonderful. 
I'm going to absolutely have to. Um, I'm following him on Twitter now, and I desperately want to get the book and then have him on the podcast because I'd like to know somebody. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, if he knew, oh like, come on. And He's it's fascinating. Weird. Yeah, people just and he also, but he also knew him personally because Mark was married to Tony Kushner, and right. Nichols had done Angels in America, yeah. and knew him for 14 years prior to writing the book. So most authors, most people who write, don't know their subjects. This is it. It's masterful. It feels like one of the best biographies I've read. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Um, thank you again for doing the show. And thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15-plus years. Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!